do you are you technologically not at all my i have a uh, a producer thank god who does everything for me see i don't i can't do any of that stuff you tell me when we're ready we're rolling oh this is the song i listen to before every podcast now i'm curious what kind of music do you listen to um, this I is Greg Fitzsimmons, to, everybody. I listen to punk. I listen to classical. Classic rock would probably be the main thing. Singer-songwriters, Dylan, Springsteen, Tom Waits. Tom Petty. I like Tom Petty, but I like something a little bit more uh, emotional. All right, so you like... like um like maybe in a cafe, just a guitar, dude telling a story kind of songs? No, not not folk. I would say just more like a, a singer-songwriter-based rock. So not like, do you ever, you ever listen to a Jerry Jeff Walker? No. Oof. Yeah? Yeah, but he's he may be a little too folky country for you, but he's dark. Yeah. This is my all-time maybe favorite song because... This is Jerry Jeff Walker? This is not. <laughs> this is Shaka Khan and Rufus. Okay. Um, here's the deal. I, I like, I'm with you. Shaka Khan. For me, I love my music to tell stories. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I actually, I don't go to a lot of concerts because a lot of concerts, I can't hear the words. Yeah. And for me, the words are so important to the, to the, for me to enjoy right. the song. Right. Like that's, you ever see the Counting Crows? Sure. That guy, and he's a, I've met him a couple times, and I don't think it's a shock. He's a bit of an egomaniac, mm-hmm. not in a terrible way, but he likes his words so much, he makes sure. Chris Robinson? Uh, that's the. Um, Black Crows. Black, the Black Crows. Uh, it's uh, Adam Duritz. Right. Adam Duritz, is, he likes his words so much that he makes sure that the band is down and he's up. Right. And I, I, I like that. Like, I can f- I like to follow the music through the words, and some people just like the ride of the music itself. No, I love Van Morrison, and yeah. uh, I like a lot of female singer-songwriters. But you, you know, like Jason Isbell? Do you listen to him? No, he's he's like I guess people would call him country, but I don't know. I think he's the best lyricist, maybe combo lyricist songwriter out there. Yeah, he's amazing, 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 amazing. Uh, uh, Sturgill Simpson? Yes. So if you like Sturgill, um, you'll. Uh, it, Jason isn't as um, trippy. Yeah. But he's a modern. I would put him in the modern day Dylan. Yeah. Well, I like uh, I like Lucinda Williams. Oh yeah. I like a lot of the alt country, which I you know the idea of liking country is weird, but then that got me into actually listening to. Um, Emmy Lou Harris and oh, like yeah. I just said, well, if I'm supposed to like country, who do I listen to? I asked some people that like country. Yeah, and uh, you know they turn they turn me on to um, well, obviously Johnny Cash, who I had never really listened to. Really, and what I about fucking, Waylon? Uh, Out Outlaw. Yeah, Waylon Jennings. Yeah, I haven't listened to him yet. Waylon and Willie, I, I I could listen to all day. Yeah, yeah, because you know what's funny is that like they're couched in. The country music genre, and so the country music genre is for the, a lot of the people who listen to it are like, oh, these are just good old boys, but these dudes were partying yeah. hard, hard, hard. I just heard an interview with Waylon Jennings, and he was talking about 
having been arrested. He spent some serious time in jail before he was even a singer. Yeah, yeah. They were like, they partied hard, yeah. hard. It's just their music was a little, it wasn't like Zeppelin where it was like they were rocking out. Right. But their lyrics and their life they lived. You know, I read um, Miles Davis' autobiography. Yeah. Did you read that? No. Those guys, the jazz guys, were the original rock stars. Yeah. They sh- shot up heroin before their shows. They got paid in cash in a suitcase that they would sit on for the whole show. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the old, yeah. yeah, the old blues guys would do that. And, and also, they were doing a music that was rejected. You know, yes. doing jazz was the devil. I mean, it was like critics that said it was shit. I mean, they were really, you know, jazz is so respected now that you, you don't know the context of how no. it was when it first came it out. It was dirty. It was the rock and roll of its time. Right. And so when they played at these jazz clubs in Harlem, um, and I would tell you to read his book, except it's so poorly written. Yeah. He, went, I think, went about his book like he went about his music, which, you know, his music, he was the first black artist to own his own music. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because those guys were getting ripped off. Those clubs were packed with black and white people. Yeah. Packed, packed, packed. And they weren't getting shit. And they didn't own their own music. Yeah. You know, they were getting pennies on the record. Right. Um, and, uh, but these guys, man, and so he, he didn't like anyone to touch his music, really. Yeah. Um... And he did the same with the book. So he edited his own book, and the English was not like his forte. Well, he's black. Yeah, it's exactly right. <laughs> it's exactly right. You know, he was, but he would introduce somebody on page seriously three hundred and eighty, and just introduce him as, and then John walked in, yeah. and I'm like, what yeah. the fuck? Who's John? Yeah. <laughs> you go back a hundred pages, and you're like, there's not even a John anywhere in here. That, yeah, that'll lose me pretty quick. That's that's yeah. my pet peeve in books is when they start referencing people that uh, were were mentioned twenty pages before. It's really tough unless it's a pivotal person and you're yeah. like, oh, I remember him. Or if he's got a nickname, yeah. If it's Pigpen, got it. Johnny Pigpen, yeah. Old Johnny Pigpen, uh huh. That's the guy that you could remember. Yeah, because Pigpen does that thing. He's into women's feet. He does foot worship. Yeah, and he smokes. Uh, and when he takes off his hat, there's like a cloud of dust, and that's why he's like yeah, the right. Charlie Brown. <laughs> he's like the Charlie Brown yeah, character. Yeah, you, you got a visual image of Big Ben. <laughs> yeah, and then I get it. Yeah. But Miles and his, he'd do run-on sentences. But I will tell you, and I'm with you. Like uh, something that's poorly written is la- is so lazy, especially now because there are editors. Yeah. Like, look, you've seen some of the reality stars who have written books, and now I haven't read them, but I'm assuming they have editors. That are smart enough. Well, they have it, ghost writers. Yeah, and punctu- yeah, who help with their punctuation. Mm-hmm. and Yeah. But you would think, and so that poorly written stuff always loses me, but his story, and I guess I didn't know, I was so uh, uh, enthralled with the, I, them being the first rock stars and what he went through to actually get himself his own, the rights to his own music right. was a good enough story to hold me for a little while. Right. And plus, I always like a good heroin tale. Oh, yeah, heroin tales are, you know, the, the thing about them is there's not redemption. Yes. It's like the drug that you just, you know how it's going to end. But isn't it crazy that, like, okay, so I don't, am, I, am I the only person that when you watch a movie about people doing heroin, you're like, that actually looks pretty fun. They oh, look like they're having fuck, a, yeah. doesn't it look like they're having a good time? Well, look, you know, now, the anybody, end of the movie, who's, anybody who's done it right. will tell you there's a reason why you get addicted, that right. it is the best. It's the best feeling in the world, everybody says. But that isn't like, 
if I didn't have such a, a, a crazy fear of shooting my putting a needle in my own arm, I think I would have tried it. And I think I would have tried it because of the movies make it look so fun. Now, I know how they end. I understand the last 30 minutes of the movie. Mm. But fuck that. That does not overpower how fun they make it look in the first hour. Well, do you think that it's worth it to do it just once? Because you're not, you're not going to get addicted if you do it once. If you consciously go into it tethered, you know, you've got a bungee cord on. Mm-hmm. You're going to do it once, and you're going to come out of it. Like ayahuasca. You get a shaman. Right. Do you think you would do that? Yes. I think I would. Snort it or shoot it? You can <sighs> snort it. Yeah. I think I would let somebody shoot me up. You want to go all in? Yeah. I think if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. What are you going to wear? Uh, I'm going to dress up like Johnny Depp in... Um, uh... Pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That yeah, would be amazing. And don't shower for no, like 10 days no, before you do I'm it. Going, I'm going f- full Johnny Depp Pirates. Thing. I'm going full Keith Richards. Where are you going to do it? Your house. <laughs> Kids, this is Josh. He's on a heroin nod. He's going to be hanging out on the couch. He's not going to do much. Mm-mm. You can climb on him. And Just ignore him. Yep. Mm-hmm. Give him some change. Orange juice. <laughs> Give him some orange juice. <laughs> Every now and then. <laughs> Yeah, that would be, that would be amazing if you rented out a room in your house, just for just people to come over and be like, "Listen, he's going to be in the room for a little while." Yeah, and then he's going to take off, like a like a hair hair B and B. Yeah, a hair a, a hair B and B is not yeah. terrible. And you know what? You could just put a ladder going up to the window, so they would never have to come in and out the front door. Right. I'm assuming it's top floor. Well, heroin people know how to get into places. Mm-hmm. You don't worry about that. You That's just true. tell them where the room is; they'll get there. <laughs> have you? You have never looked at that and been like, "Oh, that looks like fun." Oh yeah, but are I you scared? Are you? Are, is 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 or is that something? Do you have a lot of fears? Are you a fearful person? I think more so now than I used to be, for sure. But when it comes to drugs, when I was young, I hung out with some really crazy people, and I was the most sane of those. How young? People. How young are we talking about? Twelve, thirteen. You know, what? we were taking mescaline by the time we were like fourteen. Mescaline is a drug that kind of came and went. Because when I was in high school, I remember mescaline being around, but I haven't really heard of it much since, right? No, I haven't either. And it's a fun drug. Yeah. So you see colors and you laugh a lot. And um, it's definitely like a, I I believe it's a psychedelic. It's, you know, like an acid. You were doing that at what age? 14 was the first time. I remember it was my 14th birthday when I took it the first time. Where are you from? New York. In the city? Tarrytown. And was that, is Terrytown? Uh, give me the profile, is that mostly white? No, it's very mixed. It was a um, General Motors plant in town. So it's actually the most diverse population outside of New York City in the blue state of collar. New York. Uh, blue collar, but also, um, you know, like we were upper middle class, but then the rest of the town was, there was a lot of projects. There were like race riots. There was drug wars. It was pretty crazy. And your high school was mixed? Yes, very mixed. It, it, it mixed as far as money wise too. Then I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. So it was like uh, there was access to drugs, obviously because of that. Yeah. And um, drugs cut through racial lines. You yeah, know, they you do. you party with whoever wants to party, basically. That's crazy, right? The things that bring us together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that should be the next PSA. Yeah. Saturday morning cartoon. Hey kids. Yeah. You want to meet somebody who's not like you? You want to break down walls? Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> reach out and dose someone. Yeah. So you were doing mescaline at 14. At 14, and then my friends all did acid, and that's the one thing I never did because I really I was pretty aware that you could not come back from acid, and that I wasn't really I wasn't willing to go there. I have a friend of mine who's a successful executive. Um, who said that he did acid one night, he did like two or three hits, and his brain never fully came back. But he also said, and he's he's a very successful ghostwriter. Like people have had him rewrite Will Smith movies and like a lot of in, uh, movies that you would know that I'm not yeah. supposed to say that he was a ghostwriter for, but he attributes that to the acid. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I believe that acid, and you know, you talk to somebody like Joe Rogan or Ari Shafir, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe it changed their lives. I think, you know, I know firsthand Joe Rogan, who I started with, changed in a good way. It's isn't that crazy? Yeah. I, I you know, I <laughs> this is the most drug endorsing podcast of all time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that crazy? Like uh, how uh, stringent he was pre. Yeah. And it kind of opened his brain, huh? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that, you know, creative people talk about that. You know, originally acid came out as a way of dealing with uh, depression. Um, ecstasy came out as a way of couples dealing with couples therapy. Wait, I, I did hear about that, about ecstasy, but they were using acid in therapy? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was government-sponsored at first. It was totally legal, and it was used at all the major universities were testing for it, Berkeley and Stanford. and For what disorders? I think they were open to a lot of them. I think it was, uh, I I can't tell you off the top of my head, but I know depression was one of them. And um, it, I don't know what it does. It gives you a perspective. I think it takes you out of your own head, and you can see yourself in life in a way that, you come back and you you hold on to it. How come you never did it? I really I I had a friend who never came back. Who was uh, who was off from it, and I was just like, "What the fuck? How how good could this high be that yeah. you change your life?" Did so, he think it changed his life for the better? Your friend? No, he knew he knew he was a little off from it. Can you at least describe a little off? What does that mean? Like he was he spacey? was like a little little spacey. Uh, a little bit, uh, just everything was on a slight delay. Mm. Yeah. I can't sign up for that. No, and you know, cocaine is great. Cocaine, most people don't have enough money to get addicted to cocaine. Yeah. You know, you do it a bunch of times at a wedding or graduation, yeah. whatever. You, you have a fucking blast. You talk your ass off. You laugh. You have good sex. You're just interested in everything, and and it's great. And, and um, mushrooms, amazing Love trip. Love mushrooms. Great. Yep. Would you do something like an ayahuasca or a peyote with a shaman, with I a guide? I think so. Me too. Yeah, I think so. I was supposed But like you said, with a shaman. Oh, have to. You can't, it just can't be with you and your buddies in the yeah. backyard. Um, now, what's peyote versus ayahuasca? Peyote is a type of mushroom? Peyote is, um, did you ever see, uh, um, uh, what was that movie with Emilio? Rushmore. Emilio Estevez uh, the and Breakfast uh, Club. No, uh, the, when they were the Cowboys. Uh, the Outsiders. Nope, not the not the, the Emilio uh, Estevez and uh, Lou Diamond Phillips and uh, Young Guns. Young Guns, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> young Guns. They did peyote yeah. and Young Guns. Right. I don't really know. I think ayahuasca, and I could be completely wrong. And there's a like a ninety percent chance that I am, and somebody will for sure correct me. Isn't the internet great? But I think ayahuasca is a little more I- about I- introspective. Yeah. 
when you're really de- dealing with issues from your past. Yes. And I think peyote is more on the acid side. Okay. Because, you know, I just, uh, Chelsea recently did ayahuasca. I was supposed to go with her to Peru to do it. Oh, it was in her show, right? Yeah. And so, but her experience was that, and same with my buddy Dan Mario, who was there. Um, Boy, aren't you a name dropper when it comes to illegal drugs? Yeah, except I'm dropping one name that nobody knows, which is Dan Mario. Right. Okay. <laughs> Does that matter? If you drop names that nobody knows... Does, is that considered dropping a name? Well, what if they have a friend at work or a boss at work that listens to the podcast? He works for Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he was part of the episode. Yes. Oh, no, you're good. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, um, and Dan would tell you that he w- felt like he was in control. That's the difference between acid. Like acid, I was not in control. And mushrooms are parts where you're really tripping. You're not so much in control. The ayahuasca, you could really articulate what was happening to you. Do you know what I mean? Well, my whole thing about that is, is it fleeting? Because In I don't mind way? going, well, if I'm going to go on a psychedelic journey yep. and have a shaman and all that, and I'm going to have epiphanies, am I going to come to and not remember those epiphanies? No. That's the thing about the ayahuasca, I guess, is you really, it really sinks in. Really, really, really sinks in. And you can kind of, if you, uh, I, I, how are you with your brain? Can you control your brain when you start to freak out? Can you calm yourself down? You know, I meditate. I do TM every day. That so you, just, so I can just kick that in whenever I need it. I'm gonna ask you about that in just a second. Okay, but so I think then you can almost guide yourself into what you want to explore. Somewhat, but I also have depression, so I take uh, I take medicine for that, and that keeps me from. I don't have the range of emotions that I used to have. You've pretty, been pretty dead face this entire. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get a napkin for this drool? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say you haven't blinked, you haven't blinked yet. So you, you haven't blinked yeah. yet. So I don't know if that's good or bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this, it's a side effect called maniacal eye contact. <laughs> oh, MEC. Yeah, I've heard about that. That's fucking rough. <laughs> if you had MEC, like if that was a real thing, if you just never left eye contact with somebody and never blinked, you would be the least popular person in the world. Well, I do have this thing in my family. I know my brother has it and I have it. We really do lock into icon. And my mother you, does it as well. You do definitely as well. Yeah. Because every time I've even looked down to get my drink, I look back up and you're still. I don't know. Part of it is that I have, uh, I sound like such a fucking uh, broken toy, but I also have bad hearing. And so when I look Jesus. when I look at people, I'm, I'm, I'm not lip reading, but. You can read people's expressions on their yeah. faces if you don't catch every word. How are the headphones doing? Do they help you with he- your bed? They're great. That's why I wear I mean, why would I need headphones in an interview where we're not taking phone calls? It's interesting. I always put the headphones on. I just like the... That's a great thing. That's a good... Qu- I never thought of that because I am sitting right next to you. Right. And we're staring uncomfortably at each other. It makes you feel like you're doing... It's not uncomfortable at all. No, it doesn't. No. It's very comfortable. <laughs> too comfortable. It is. Too- <laughs> Thank God this fucking desk is between us. <laughs> and these windows are open. Good thing we're near the street and everyone no, but can I th- see us. I think it's also just like um, I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. You got a whole. I take medication for also. How many medications do you take every morning? A lot. So ADHD, depression. But so then be- with, with the ADHD, if I stare at people, mm-hmm. it keeps my mind from wandering. If I were to look away from you, I might. You might lose me. What? How many things? How many bottles do you open every morning to take a pill? Oh no, pill boxes. They pill boxes. We're oh, way really? beyond opening bottles. Oh really? Yeah. So you got a pill box. How many pills are you taking every morning? 
I have no idea. I fill them up. I fill. I have two of them, so I fill them up. Um, Supplements every too? two weeks, like vitamins. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, everything. Um, one I- aspirin for the heart. Do you take one for the heart? Yeah, the vitamin D helps with the depression. Helps vitamin- you soak in uh, I've sunlight. I've heard the vitamin D is good. Yeah. Um, I I have started taking uh, something called chlorella. Is that one of the um, evil stepsisters in yes. Cinderella? Mm-hmm. Chlorella is is the evil stepsister who who used to poop in the toilet and not flush. So, <laughs> so Cinderella, Cinderella has to yeah. deal with a chunky yeah. log. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Guess what I had for dinner last night, <laughs> yeah. Cinderella. Yeah, that she didn't make the cartoon, but she was <laughs> definitely there. Sure. Is Chlorella going to be in this episode? Nah. Just- yeah, this is the R. Crumb version <laughs> of Cinderella. <laughs> I loved Crumb. Yeah. You? Well, I first got exposed to him. I was in New York, and my sister worked at an art gallery, and it was when they first started doing this tour of his stuff. Yeah. Back in, like, uh, probably in 93 or something at the Alexander Gallery in New York. And I remember going in, and it was, like, life-changing just to see, as an artist, somebody put themselves out there with no fear of being judged. Uh, It was the most, like... I felt like somebody channeling their unconscious like very few artists I've seen in my life. I had the same reaction. It, it, my reaction was, it, he, this, here's a guy who truly followed the, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Right? Well, I don't even think he thought about them coming. But but you I know what I mean? He like just He just put it, it out, right? But, yeah. So a guy who did not filter himself, he basically believed that this is what I like and the people yeah. who like it will find it. Right. And, and it, I'm with you. Like every now and then, I have to check myself. Before with you my, wreck yourself. Yeah, but I I ch- ch- check myself. Yeah. Um, as a like when I do stand up, I'm like that joke is not what I really think. Right. Do, every it now gets and then, a laugh, but it's not. Yes. And and the more you do it, the more it feels hollow, and the less laughs yes. you're getting. Yeah. It's interesting, right? You yeah. know, I find uh, uh, and I find like for you and. For people who aren't familiar with you, I don't know how that's possible, but like you are one of the few people that I would say is equal as far as writer and a performer. Most people can are really only excel at one. Yeah. They may be a great writer and an okay performer or a great performer and an okay writer, but you really uh, marry the two as well as anybody. Wow, and, thank you, man. Um, I... Do you ever, and have you ever in this town, because I know you're a very intelligent dude, and so this is not something I'm telling you that you don't know. Have you ever looked at people who are clearly not the writers you are and not the mm, not technically as sound as you and been like, I don't fucking get it? Bobby Lee? <laughs> All he's, you have to do is take off your clothes and have a jet, hey, hey. jet black nutsack. Now he's coming up. I'm, I'm interviewing him later today. Um, but he would tell you that writing no, because, isn't his. Isn't no, his... because I, you know, coming up in Boston, there was a lot of guys like that. There were guys. There were there were two camps in Boston when I started. There was the Knicks Comedy Stop comics, who had mullets and wore sweatsuits on stage and broke a sweat. One guy had a t- would bring a towel. Why are you talking about they, Lenny Clark like that? It was, it was <laughs> yeah, Lenny Clark. Yeah. It was Kevin Knox. Yeah. And, um, you know, these guys just fucking brought it, and I respected the shit out of them. I was like, wow, these guys have a gift. They have a joy. They love what they're doing. And then you had the guys across town at Catch a Rising Star in Cambridge, David Cross and John Groff and Louis C.K. and Janine uh, Garofalo. And, 
you know, people that were Mark Marin, people yeah. that were totally different, and they were very cerebral, and they sat, and they didn't take the mic out of the uh, out of the stand, and a lot of them ended up becoming writers. Like John Groff is one of the biggest showrunners in Hollywood mm-hmm. now. Um, Paul Kozlowski, um, so. No, I I I always saw it as like everybody's got a different tool belt, and um, combining the two, I appreciate you saying that because uh, I think that my performing fell behind my writing for a long time, and then I went to acting school, and I think it helped me physicalize a little bit more and become more comfortable. What uh, was that? It you weren't comfortable on stage. I was, but I would see videotapes myself, and like I, I described it to somebody once. Like I, I fast forwarded to get to one part to the other. Yeah. And it looked like a Chaplin film. Like I didn't move. <laughs> like I, I just all you saw was like my hands moving back yeah, and forth. Like and, Parkinson's. Yeah. I, yeah. I looked like Michael J. Fox doing <laughs> yeah. stand up. And so, uh, so, but, but not just the, um, the movement. But I think it also helped me connect to my material in a way that I was able to get out of my head and uh, think about what I was doing and. I don't know. It's hard to describe, but acting school um, frees you up. It gets you out of your head a little bit. Uh, when do you feel like you're, you sunk into your material? Where you were like, because I, I'm, and I know people on my podcast may get sick of hear, hearing me talk about it because it's been so recent for me and I've been doing it a long time. And up and look, from a year, a year ago past, people who came to my show had a good time. Yeah. But for me, you know, you you mentioned that hollow feeling. Yeah. For me, there was always something lacking. And I was always like, why are the shows that I do at midnight for 30 people my favorite shows? What am I not, what's not translating for me from the sold out seven to the 12 o'clock show? Yeah. And I knew what it was. The sold out seven was too robotic. It was jokes and jokes. And jokes that were working, kill, and you wanted to maximize that. But it wasn't, for me, personal enough. And and I don't mean like when when I say personal, it doesn't have to be a a joke about how my you know my uncle touched me when I was eight. He did. Well, was I was nine. That's a good bet. Yeah, it's a great bit. It kills. Um, (laughs) Some people like it. Some people really don't. Like my uncle, he hates that. Oh fucking Um, Ernie. But there was something I was like, okay, it doesn't have to be. You're not like I don't have to be giving out my gory details of my life for it still to be personal, right? Yeah. And that was the thing, like something that I connected in or truly believed and recently within the last year. And it's happened because I sat behind the mic and I didn't take the mic out of the stand. And from somebody who was so physical on stage for so long, the standing behind, thank you very much, but standing behind the stand became much more personal. Yeah, I mean, I saw Marin do it. When he started sitting on a stool, it made this huge difference. Um, I think for me, probably alternative comedy, when when I was in New York, this had probably been about nine, 94 or so, 93. They started, I was there. I literally found the first uh, Luna Lounge in New York mm-hmm. on Ludlow Street, which was like the first alternative comedy room. And it was me and Michael O'Brien. And um, who was the other guy that was looking? Oh, Lisa Langang. What's say that last name again? Lisa Line Gang. Lion Gang. Line Gang. Line Gang. Line Gang. L i n e g a n g. Right. She's uh, she works for NBC in development, but back then she was just she was like talent for MTV right. or something. And uh, so I started storytelling, and I was watching people that were masters at it. And this is back when 
alternative comedy was like the UCB would mm-hmm. come and do a sketch from the audience, and then this guy uh, Michael uh, something. Jordan. No, it would have been great if it was him, though, right? Pre-basketball? Michael Jordan used to come in, and uh, you know he would he would just play defense. He, he would, would do try seven to minutes on Pippen. Yes, that was his, my favorite one. He did his seven minutes on Pippen, and he ended with that Luke Longley joke. <laughs> Those were my favorite. <laughs> Did you see the Golden State game last night? I did. Yeah. Oh, you're not a fan. You know what? I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. Going into the series, I was like, I like Golden State, but I had never watched them really watch them. Yeah. And the more I watched Draymond Green, that dude's Bill Lambert. Yeah. He's cheap as fuck. He is. And I was like, oh, I'm so happy to have a team to hate. Yeah. Because it just makes the games love Steph. Um, But... Draymond Green, I, he went from a guy last month that I was like, I love this guy. And mm. then I watched, he's chippy, He man. is chippy. And yeah. so it was just gave me someone to hate in a playful way. Like, right. I'm, I don't really care that much. Now, he'll just take the ball and hold it like a football and run into a crowd. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that takedown he did last night with that dude's arm. Yeah, I know. Like, that is what, that move could have done to that guy's shoulder what happened to Kevin Love last year against the Celtics. Yeah. Could have ripped it right out. What about you? You you were voting, rooting for I'm them? I'm a playoff uh, fan of every sport. Give me the playoffs. Hockey, too. Hockey's <sighs> great. I mean, it's unbelievable. The Blues. Yeah. I was in St. Louis watching that town shut down and not attend Greg Fitzsimmons shows. I mean, <laughs> it is literally the yeah. worst I've done in the last three years, attendance-wise. It was fucking brutal because the game, I was there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and there were games on Thursday and Saturday. Friday, packed. Thursday and Saturday, Josh, like I had just started and nobody had ever heard of me. It was fucking embarrassing. I had, they'll never have me back to that club again. Can I tell you something? And this is where I started doing stand-up. I had that this weekend at Bellevue in Washington. Memorial Day weekend. Saturday shows, uh, great. I mean, Thursday and Friday were like a death march. Yeah. Oh, that club is tough to put people into. Well, especially that's a, that is an area where people go away yeah. from Memorial Day weekend. They go out to the island, go to Orcas Island or fucking wherever, but that town clears out. It, but By the way, Bellevue, Washington might be the whitest town I've ever stepped foot well, in. Well, it's the home of Microsoft. Yeah. Yeah. Super white. You know, I. By the way, it's just outside of Seattle. It's across the bridge. Yeah. Do you, do you know what? Did I ever tell you that I, I interviewed Bill Gates? Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. I How'd you do that? I was I was doing an industrial film for them. Yeah. And so I had to, and it was, they were going to play it on the big screen at the kingdom. This is when the kingdom was still, and so that's where they're having their party. And You're right. I got to interview them, and it was really. Interview in the sense that here's the script, ask them these questions? Yes. Yeah. That was, I, I and, and it was very specific, by the way. Don't vary from the script. Mm. Bill does not vary from the scripts. And it was very clear. You have one take. Roll all the cameras. Yeah. He doesn't have a whole lot of time. Yeah. Which I was like, got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be asking too much of Bill Gates. He should have just started asking about psychedelics. He varied from the script. He did. He told a joke. Nice. I laughed. I laughed, and I brought my head back and tried to hold in my laughter. When I held in my laughter, I breathed out my nose. When I breathed out my nose, I shot a snot on his <laughs> wrist. <laughs> Okay, listen. <laughs> so did he acknowledge it? Okay, one take, Bill. Nothing keeps going with the story. 
Finishes, says, shakes my hand, says, thank you very much, takes the handkerchief out of his pocket, wipes the snot off his lit, lit, wrist, throws it in the trash can, and walks out of the room. That's a pro. Like a fucking gangster. Yeah. But you know, you know, how, you know what I was scared of, right? I was scared that he was going to walk outside and go, hey, erase the history of that guy. Yeah. He just snotted on me. Yeah. He never existed. Don't let him off the campus. Wow, you snotted on Bill Gates. Right? That's the headline, not I interviewed Bill no, Gates. No, but I need, if I snot on it, I take away the punchline. Yeah. That was. Uh, I don't know. I think he could work backwards from you that. You think so? Yeah. Do you? Is there somebody? Is is there like a guy or a woman for you? You're like, oh, if I could sit down across from this person and pick their brain. Oh, Mel Brooks. You know, he, when I shot my show, he his office was right above ours. Oh yeah. He used to walk by and say hello every day. Very friendly guy. Very friendly. Yeah. Very open. Will answer any question you want. Uh-huh. He loves talking about it. Yeah. And every you know there was, <laughs> every time there would be like a loud thump on the ceiling above the running office joke was mel brooks just died (laughs) (laughs) Mm, they're gonna be carrying mel down soon (laughs) i got carl reiner to come in i i heard that yeah which was really amazing why mel brooks for you i just when i was growing up me and my dad uh we're pretty close and comedy was a big part of our relationship and the the 2000 year old man was just these records that and i still have the whole set it was a box set and we used to listen to them and just fell in love with them, and I just, you know, all his movies we would watch together, and I just don't know that there's anybody in the world I've ever found to be as purely funny. Like, no gimmick. I mean, he does voices and rhythm, right. but there's no gimmick. It's just funny. Do you think, and I'm going to try this this week, because I have all the week with my son, with Jacob, and I'm off the road, and he he's going to London with his girlfriend next week. Wait, how old is he? 19. Jesus. Um, but do you think History of the World will hold up for yes. a 19-year-old? Oh, yeah, definitely. I remember watching that when I was growing up thinking, this is the single funniest movie I've ever seen. The only problem with it is a lot of it, I mean, I think it was probably like a 1980s movie, Yeah, is that a lot of like the racial jokes depend on the context of how we did racial jokes in the 80s. You know, black jokes... Yeah. Being about blacks like to dance, and yeah. bla- they're 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 not stereotypes that still exist as much. They've been just sort of whitewashed. Now. What's that? They're just truths. They're now. just truths. They yeah. like to fucking dance. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> and um, so I don't know if you like like in Bla- in uh, Blazing Saddles. When I don't he know says if Blazing the new Sheriff is a nigger. Yeah. Like, that's like my son loved Blazing Saddles, but it's also got the fart scene. Yeah. It's got uh, what's her name as the as the whore. She was Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Not, Peters to me, the, it's a whole generation of comedy that I wish would be rediscovered. Yeah. Although I will tell you this, like I wasn't a big fan of. I like when people say that. I will tell you this. Why don't you just tell me this? I will. You're announcing that you will tell me this. I'm about to tell you this. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you that. Forget this. <laughs> um. Uh. I was not I was not a fan of the big overblown era of comedy with the uh, Jim Carrey and yeah. that that you know, you know liar liar that that era American Pie American Pie was not as Jim Carrey yeah but I like the new era of the Jonah Hill Seth Rogen <sighs> you don't I like oh. I like the more conversational I like look the movie This Is the End have you seen it yeah I love that. I love that. I mean, that was one of the funniest movies. I don't dis. I don't dislike. I mean, what is it you don't like you about could name those a bunch movies? of those movies? And I'd like, and obviously, J- 
the Judd Apatow ones are really good. Yeah, I, but I feel like I he could take 20 minutes out of a couple of those movies. Probably. Yeah, he does like three-hour movies, right? Yeah. But I just find them as a movement. Like when I saw the cover of a magazine and said that, and it said like the new face of comedy, I was like, this? Like it used to be Bill Murray yep. and Dan Aykroyd. And, you know, and then you look at that and you go like, that's the best we got? Yeah, but here's a, there's a certain subtlety to their jokes that isn't a Jim Carrey yeah. that I like. It's conversational. It's too cutesy and it's too ironic. This is the end. That scene with Franco and Danny McBride faking throwing co- coming on each other. Right, but a lot of that was the writing. You yes. know, it was yeah, just yeah, it yeah. was the, the 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 stakes in that were so huge and they 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 played it just right. Yep. I don't know. I mean, no, they were great. It was it was a great movie. I can't but like, I don't which, know. Can you think of a comedy that was held in high esteem recently that you were like, that's not for me? A comedy? Yeah, because if you're saying that's that type of comedy is the one you don't like, can you think of an example of the movie? Or is it just more like the feeling and the movement behind it? I don't like romantic comedies anymore. I yeah. feel like they used to have a little bit more of like a quirkiness that was... That wasn't forced. Mm-hmm. Now it's like the characters are all the same stereotypes. It's like, you know, the 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 hot girl who's got a best friend who's a little overweight, and then there's the guy that comes in and he's nerdy, mm-hmm. and you know he's the one. And then the the girl only realizes it later, and she's sitting barefoot, cross-legged in a window while it rains with an oversized cup of tea, and her mm. sleeves are hanging down. You too are long. a writer, aren't you? Oh. you're on the moth right now. What? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something then. <laughs> so you, what about, I'll tell you the romantic comedy that I loved, and it's within the last three or four years, and I don't know that people would consider it romantic comedy, but to me, I was hoping it would spark a new movement mm-hmm. of romantic. It was the one with Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro, oh, Silver yeah. Linings Playbook. Yeah. So to me, that, that was great. And it was funny, and it was it was a, a romantic story with two people that we'd never fucking seen before. Right. So I'm with you. Like I liked it because it was it, quirky, but it wasn't forced quirky. It was it was layered characters. It was re- characters 100%. that had a history that you didn't know right away that revealed themselves mm-hmm. over time, and you know the warmth that came from the parents. You didn't get. You know, they really held it out. They didn't. You know they 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 held true. They a lot of restraint on De Niro's character yeah. in that. Well, until you yeah, because you realize at the end. Oh, he's as fucked up as Bradley Cooper. Right, right. That was, I will tell you that, you know, look, no no movie in a father-son way has ever hit me as hard as Billy Elliot. I wept like an open, like openly wept in the movie theater three or four times. I don't even remember that one. Is he a dancer? <sighs> yes. I went, I took a first date to that movie and cried and she was like, are you crying? Was it Scottish? Yeah. Or English? Eng- I, in Ireland, maybe. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was like you cried openly. Wept, First date wept. Here's the, here's the thing. Now, when Billy Elliot came out, it was a while ago, and tattoos were not something everybody was getting. Yeah. So I had just gotten my first tattoo. So I showed the girl, and, and she was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool. You got a tattoo." I'm like, "Yeah, pretty tough, right?" Yeah. She was like, "What do you want to see?" I, go, I don't care. She goes, "I've always want to see. I've wanted to see Billy Elliot." I'm like, "Cool." <laughs> so I go into the movie. <laughs> Feeling like a badass. Yeah. Because she's like, this dude just got a tattoo and he's coming out on a date with me. Yeah. And then by like 40 minutes in, I'm asking for a tissue. I got to go get a tissue. (laughs) It was like the fucking worst. We only had one date. That's it. 
We went on one date. Fuck her. You know, for a lot of women, I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday, is when you really want to capture a woman's heart, yeah. they, they say they want a guy who's funny, but they really want a guy who's tough. But what seals it is a guy who'll cry. Yes, but but a guy they want range. But they, yes, they do. They want De Niro, and not a, a lot of us can't do De Niro, right. right? But they want tears, but they want tears after a couple years of never seeing tears. Yeah, that's true. You led with the tears. Uh, I opened with tears. Yeah, that's not a good opener. No. It is an interesting thing, right? But I, I feel like there has been more of a movement. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm try- I just put myself in her shoes. Yeah, for a you can't open with tears. No, no, you gotta because then you're assuming that that happens a lot. If it happens on the first date, where you're trying to put your best foot forward, yeah, that's the thing. Like on first dates, and also it wasn't crying like one tear, the no. Indian with the pollution cry. No. This was tissue crying. Bad, just terrible. Yeah. Snot crying. Oh, my God. And trying to hold it in. So every now and then I would go, <laughs> and like a whole uh, thing of spit would just come out. <laughs> Bill Gates all over yeah. again. <laughs> I will tell you, like, I think for a while there was a movement where people wanted, women wanted their men. And, and now, look, women, we are now just speculating. Yeah. Who wanted to be more sensitive? But I, I feel like there's now seventies oh, yeah, Alan Alda. There's a movement now where I think women want their dudes to be a little tougher. Mm. Although I will tell you, I don't know about you. I contemplate whether I'm a pussy or not a lot. My whole life. But 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 like, I think in the twenty first century, with the guys walking around, I can fix a couple things. I can build a couple things, right? So mm. I think that puts me in the upper echelon of not of of. 21st century men mm. but like then i watch movies like the revenant mm. you know why there are no funny people in like movies like that because they killed us all we weren't useful right. they were like what do you do i make people laugh i'm gonna have to fucking kill you right what do you do can you build something you know i mean there was that in that movie there were 24 scenes where i'm like oh, i would have died there yeah oh i would have i would have never cut open a horse and slept in it but you would have. That's the thing that I think we underestimate what we could do if if we needed to. I really do. If like, there was a dead horse next to you, you would think, I'm going to cut that open. I wouldn't necessarily generate the thought, but if I had the thought, right. I think I'd execute the action. Yeah, but here's the thing. What I go back to is like, that dude slept in a horse for warmth. Yeah. I bring a movie. I bring a fucking sweater to the movie theaters. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I went to the movies uh, last night with my wife. And I wore jeans, yeah, hiking boots, three shirts, a fleece, and then I had a wool cap in my pocket. And it was sixty degrees out. Right. I am such a pussy with cold. So, and that, they're hiking. Th- no, that movie killed me. Like, hiking <laughs> yeah. through the cold water. It's true. I do think I would just let myself die. Because, but in, I don't think we really would. Well, in those movies, that's what always gets me. When you see them in the freezing cold, in their clothes, walking through freezing cold water. Mm. Then, because I know, like, if I get caught out for five minutes in the rain with my jeans on, I'm like, this is so uncomfortable. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I really am like, I don't know how I'm going to, I couldn't. But they're trudging through a freezing river in the snow. And then what do they do with their clothes? They just walk around? That's what I never get. And also, they all fuck hookers, so they've got gonorrhea. So yeah. there's, there's drip in their underwear. There's like a pustule drip. You think that in keeps them warm? 
I think, yeah, you get a fever from that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that drip dick. Is, yeah. That's, everybody yeah. wants a little bit of the drip dick during the winter, and they right. don't get it better. Yeah. I, I, that's the thing. Like, I don't think that I would have been great, but maybe not. Maybe I would have been better than I think as a pioneer's man. But listen, he ate, like, a raw bison. No problem. I he would do that no problem. No, listen, when when I eat a banana that's a little too soggy, I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, but that's because you're used to being comforted. I think that your capacity for cold and discomfort goes up a lot when you need it to. I really believe that. Like, um, I think about even going into prison. I see these prison movies, and I'm like, you know there's no thermostat in that prison. Mm-hmm. It fucking goes down to 50 degrees at night. You got one blanket. That's it. And, and I a just thin think, mattress. And forget the lack of freedom. The thin mattress and the no blanket is like, you know, and it, the shitting in front of other people. Yeah, even that doesn't bother me. But the temperature thing would just kill. But anyway, let me ask you this: If you're saying that women now want a guy who's tougher, mm-hmm. I can see that. Except for wh- what about the uh, proliferation of the of the hipster, who are, who seem kind of soft? I have to tell you that the. The SJW is, I think, the worst thing to happen. What's SJW? The social justice warrior. That's what you call a hipster? That's what they're... No, the hipsters are maybe different than the S... You haven't heard about the SJW no. movement? The SJW is basically the, the the movement that's all the college kids who are protesting all around. The Have you seen those protests and what they're protesting for? What, like Black Lives Matter type stuff? No. Yeah, I, that's part of it. Social justice warriors? Yeah, the social justice warriors who are standing up for... Every, like, if you are anything but a white man, they're going to stick up for you. It's a... it's a The, the college protest... These are people like trigger words? Yes. Safe spots, safe right. safe areas and shit. Yeah. And the, the, the protests that have been going around in colleges this year have been... Do you know what? UC Davis... There was a group of people who got, you know, those sumo wrestling outfits? Yeah. They got them outlawed because they thought it, the the people were p- proliferating their culture. The Japanese culture? Well, here's the thing. And they were like, it's also, a, it's not, you know, it's it doesn't depict Japanese people in a nice light. Yeah. But, but it, that's their... The, the sumos are big. Like, they were like, it's a fat suit. I'm like, yeah, but the sumos are fat. If you're not fat... Then you're just oh, Japanese. You're about like when they play the that game. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. No, just the suit in general for Halloween or whatever. Right. Right. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. I don't understand where the oversensitivity came and started coming in. And for me, I I, I guess I saw it a couple years ago because I used to ha- you tell a joke that had the word retarded in it and talking about retarded kids, but the joke made fun of the people who made fun of retarded kids. Yeah. But it didn't matter. As soon as I said retarded kids, I could see I would lose people. Yeah. What do you think happened? And why do you think that words, that people aren't looking any deeper into meaning of things, right? And they're just, like a lot of times when people go, that's a Holocaust joke. That's not okay. And as a Jew, I'm like, it's actually a joke. It's an anti-Holocaust joke. Yeah. It's a joke talking about how terrible the conditions were in the camps. Yeah. But because I make a skinny Jew joke, it's like somehow. Yeah, and the truth is, I think people are less persecuted now than they ever have been. You know, I mean, yes. you can talk about, um, you know, fundamental like uh, socioeconomic differences when you when you talk about 
a black person's ability to get a better education or um, a Native American's per, uh, ability to, um, you know, live where they want to live. Right. You know, they, there's there's certain things you can't argue with. Right. But for the status quo, I don't think it's really, I don't think people are under attack as much as they were. Gay marriage is, is come out now. I think yep. that, you know, you're starting to see a, um, a decrease in the gap between um, women and men in the workplace. But I think it's also like, the the straight white male definitely the one percenters have more money than they used to you yes. know percentage wise and so i think people feel disenfranchised and this is the reaction is to say well let's make some rules <coughs> jesus right <laughs> in the mic, huh? i mean you're either snotting on bill gates or you're coughing directly into the microphone i breathe in and i must have swallowed a bug or something but well, I didn't give you enough water. I presented you with like a four ounce bottle. That's of all water. right. That's all right. Here's my question, though. So, if that is the case, do you? Why then do you feel like there is such a movement for people feeling that they are not heard? Well, because it, you know, if you're if you are part of a group that doesn't have access to a high school education. You know, then eventually, you know, you're gonna you're gonna dig in about it, but the way they're digging in just doesn't seem to be as effective as, um, you know, trying to get your community to to present um, leaders, um, creating jobs and businesses like what you see with uh, certain like Koreans. Mm-hmm. You know, they start their own businesses and they hire other Koreans, and there's a strong community, and they've created they've made the schools better in the in the uh, areas that they live i i would also say like for me and maybe i have blinders on but to me it's way more about money than it is about black and white like especially when people there's no doubt there's systemic racism okay there's no doubt but in the court system if you're black with money you have as good a chance getting off. I as, saw the OJ series. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what you, that was all about. Yeah, you have. It's it's money. Look, Ray Lewis, if he didn't kill somebody, he was there and saw somebody get killed. Yeah. Never saw a day. Yeah. You know, it's it's money. You know, Dante Stallworth ran over somebody in his car. Mm. You know, OJ Simpson, right? It, it's just it's if you're But the percentage of people that have the freedom money that's is the different. Thing. That's the thing. So Without a doubt, that is where I think more of the racism might come in is how we're how the money is being doled out to people. Mm. But once you get in front of that judge, it's really about how I think how much money you have. Well, I guess I should restate what I said before, because I do think that there there is fundamental systemic racism and oppression. Yes. But I think what I what I meant to say in terms of I think there's less. Um, slander and bigotry openly uh, than there used to be. So I guess I'm trying to tie the two together in saying that, you know, the the political correctness movement came about because there is these discrepancies. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't know that that's the reaction to the disparities that is that is going to help the most. I think also, I think that, and again, I I am Jewish, 
But I know people don't think. Yeah, listen, I got to roll. Yeah. <laughs> I know people don't think that we get uh, hate. We get a ton of it. Sure you do. A, t- a ton, a ton of it. And now. Yeah, there it, was just a thing where there was a writer who had written something about Trump. I was reading about it in the New York Times yesterday. And this guy got deluged with Jew hating, like pictures of the, of the Holocaust. Yeah. His picture superimposed on a guy walking into a Holocaust. Um, no, it's rough outside of New York and LA. It's not, but I would say this: I think there's less. It's just louder now, hmm. right? So I think because of social media. Yeah, I think it's louder. I think it's just louder. So people think there's. It's like pedophiles. No, people are so scared now. I don't think there are more pedophiles now than there used I to agree. be. They're just we just know where there's a website where you know where they fucking are. Like yeah. so you and you see every abduction. So it strikes fear into your heart, right? Mm. So I think it's the same thing. I think there's less outward bigotry, but I just think that it's louder. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's in front of your face. When you when you uh, open your phone, if somebody said something bad on Twitter, it's going to be all over the place. Facebook, it's going well, to be in front of your face. I think the distinction is, um, you know, in, in terms of how I'm trying to um, badly phrase my my two different points, is that there's bigotry and there's racism. Yes. And, you know, with, with bigotry is being blown out of proportion. If you say something that's that's politically incorrect, then it gets blown up and it can really hurt you. Yep. As opposed to if you're racist and you have denied somebody access to work or paid them less or physically abuse them that's racism mm-hmm. and that's the thing that needs to be dealt with not the f- not the words and the uh opinions you can have an opinion that you don't like a race of people which which is obviously unpleasant yes it's a good word but it's not illegal no big difference yeah do your kids have black friends yes do they go to a diverse school yes did you do that on purpose yes um, wow, I'm doing good so far. I know you really are. You, yeah. What? Why? What went into that for you? Well, I went to public school in New York up until high school, and then I went to a private school, and I fucking hated it. And I really felt like I missed out on a big part of. And part of the reason why my parents took me out of school is it was bad. It was right. diverse to the point where, you know, you were doing mescaline. I was selling mescaline. No. Yes, for Andre Green, the blackest human being you've ever met in your life. Wait, you were selling mescaline? Selling mescaline. How much was mescaline going for at the time? $8. That's a great deal. I paid five. Boom, $3 for felonious. That's a 60% markup. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And my wife, you know, my wife grew up in New York City, and we came out here and we just saw these fucking stuffy all white yeah. schools and it just didn't feel right and so we got very lucky we got them into a school system that's the best in los angeles just because of where we live and uh but but at the same time there's a there's a mixed population and uh so now my my son's first girlfriend was black and uh a really? lot of his friends are black and also he plays sports and blacks are uh excellent athletes so <laughs> that's true they team up together as a jew we max out athletically around 12 like the Jews are like that dude's great. And you then played he, sports though. I played college baseball, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would tell you like for me, I learned more, and this is why I, I always encouraged people, even people whose kids were not athletic, let them play sports at least for two years. Yeah, I learned more about interacting with other kids on a field on a team than I did anywhere else. Hmm. 
because and also you if the best people on your team are gracious kids and they're inclusive kids it's really a great experience for everybody yeah and you know what else and i know people wouldn't say this because they want everyone to be equal and everyone get a trophy it's important to learn there are some things i'm not going to be as good at everybody else at how do i find my place yeah, my son went through that with soccer. He's a really good soccer player. Yeah. And he played for a couple teams where he was the best player on the team. And he was the captain. And and then he finally ended up on this team that literally, we just had a tournament this weekend, is the number one team in California. And he was on that team last year, and it didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. He wasn't starting for the first time in his life. And the coach did not like him. And, uh, and I'm not one of those parents like, oh, the coach doesn't right. like my kid. Like, he just didn't like him. He said kind of, insensitive things to him and and so he left the team and now he's on a different team and i'm seeing him i'm seeing him go back to the cocky player Mm -hmm. that he was before who has flair and has confidence and attacks and fucking wants and i just thought what you know what a horrible year it was last year it was crushing because so much of his identity is in soccer yeah but to have gone through that and now come back and found a team that is not the number one team in California, but is still an excellent team, mm-hmm. and be playing the whole game, and to to not take it for granted the way he probably Huge. did before. You know, um, Jacob, my my son who's nineteen now, he was an excellent baseball player. Uh, he would be honest with you as far as pitching, he was amazing, and I was and I played. And I was I watched him growing. I was like, oh, he's gonna play college baseball. Yeah, he's gonna play college baseball. Now he could never hit that well, but he, he at a very young age could throw the ball wherever he wanted it to go. Which you know he never walked anybody. You put the glove up, he would hit it. Yeah, he had that, and he could throw a change up. And and um, he started. So he went to a team, and he, early on he was the best. And he went to a different league. And he went to a team where he wasn't the best. And his, he could always hit in the lower leagues because the play, kids weren't as good. When he got up to the higher leagues, he just couldn't hit. And I, it was tough for him, right? Because he wanted to be the guy. And my thing was, hey, even if you're not the best person on the team, you can still make yourself invaluable to that team. Hmm. Find out what that team needs. Right. Make yourself somebody they can't get rid of. You can still do that and not be the best, whether it's you're the guy that keeps everybody up, whether it's... But for me, the important lesson was you're not always going to be the best, but you can still make yourself invaluable. Yeah. And so, like, for me... You ever read the book called The Art of Fielding? No. Yeah? It's about... It's exactly that. It's about college baseball team in Michigan and about these players and how one of them has to shift and he has to become a utility infielder because otherwise he's not going to stay on the team. Right. Yeah. Well, think about professional baseball players. For sure, they were the best at every level they ever played yeah. at. And now they're on a team and some people are the worst. Yeah. How do you know what I mean? That's got to be a crazy shift because they were the best. Yeah. The to play professional baseball, you haven't sucked at any level. Well, and it may go back a little bit to what you were saying about the early show and the late show. On the late show, you're cocky and loose because you kind of have nothing to lose. Yeah. And when you're on the early show, there's more pressure, and you need you feel like you need to crush because if you don't crush in front of a crowd like this, mm. it looks really bad. And I almost feel like I'm not as relaxed on those shows as I am in the late show. I agree. And I think that when you go to a team that's that competitive, you tighten up. You're, you're, not, you're not your loose, cocky self. Do you, do, have you ever coached 
your son's teams? Just for a minute. Did yeah. he like it? He did. He was fine. But you didn't like it? I felt like I was never a good athlete, so I didn't feel justified in doing it. And I could see the other fathers watching me coach. Right. And they were, and, like, they, but they were, and I was just like, look, it, the only reason I'm doing this is none of you motherfuckers would do it. Right. So I just did it because we wouldn't have had a team if I didn't. And it was basketball. Uh. And I literally would like not even be dribbling it very well. And I'd be telling them, I guess just go in between these cones yeah. and around. You know there's a basket. Let's try to put it in there. Yeah, I didn't even know what a drill was. I was making up drills in my head. I loved, I've said it a million times. I, if I didn't do stand-up, I would love to coach kids baseball. I had so much fun doing it. Yeah. It was, the for me, the most. Why don't you do personal one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching? I don't know that technically I'm that good. Yeah. But as far as coaching a team, I had so much fun doing it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like, I don't know exactly what it was. I, I Maybe it's because I had so much fun playing baseball growing up. I don't know. Well, I think you look up to coaches your whole life. They're very special people. Yeah. And I think you probably feel that from the kids when you're doing it. Did you not play sports growing up? I did. I just wasn't good. What age did you stop your masculine and cocaine ride? Uh, I got sober at 24. Well, that's young. Yeah. Why had you spiraled? Well, I started at 12 and my dad was an alcoholic and I just saw I saw it as like something that I spent a lot of time regulating and thinking about how mm -hmm. much I was drinking and feeling guilty and ashamed and it got to the point where it was just like, look, if I'm if this is taking this much energy, this is just I'm not I wasn't like sucking dicks for a, you know, I hit a mescaline. Yet. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I think I would have gone through my life probably without, you know, falling apart, but I don't know that I'd be happily married. I don't think I'd be an involved parent. I don't think that my career would be where I'd like it to be. Did you, it's a not a, you, not a weed guy right now. You're 100% no, sober. I smoke some weed. Yeah. I, I, but I don't drink or take drugs. Well, weed is a drug. No, it's not. No, not a drug. No, it's just this thing that makes you feel silly. <laughs> <laughs> oh well that that that's perfect then you know i i bumped into my son in my weed store no way <sighs> it was the worst <laughs> it was the worst i mean it was the worst because what do you say it was so uncomfortable did you guys know you had licenses yeah i knew he had one you did. and he knows i have one right. and he's seeing me do the getting dug with high and all that stuff yeah but when i walked in i saw him and i was like hey and he goes oh hey uh -huh. yeah and then he put his wallet away because he was like you're buying right i go no i'm not buying ah. your drugs <laughs> but did you both make a purchase yeah well i'm I no quitter out. i'm no quitter out. why because he knows i'm there already i just didn't purchase as much as i was gonna yeah um but well, him how much do you need to buy how much do I need to buy? I mean, because, like, I don't smoke much at all. Mm -hmm. But, like, do you, do you go through, like, an ounce of pot in a week? Well, I don't roll joints anymore. So I don't know. I eat edibles, and last night I I smoked a joint. By yourself? Yeah. The whole joint? Yeah. Of that California shit? Yeah. I was. Damn. Yeah. I was. You have been wasted. Yeah. I was pretty fucked up. And but I, what'd you do? Well, I've been experimenting with writing high. Wow. I've been experimenting with it. You know, I I was kind of down on myself and my writing for so long. And I don't exactly know why. I think this is the one area that I beat myself up more than I should. Yeah. And not just comedy writing. You know, I've, I've sold 
features and sure. television and then wrote a book. Wrote a book. And um I I just that's the part of I don't know why I'm so because whenever I read back I'm like, this is fucking the worst. Mm. And I kind of, the reason I started smoking a little bit is because I don't have that reaction. You don't judge yourself. No, not as much. I don't know why I judge my writing so much harsher than I do everything else. Mm. Because with my stand-up, I'll go, okay, that didn't work. What can I tinker with? And I know it's a work in progress. And with that script... I, I I expect that first draft to be fucking perfect. No, that's the biggest mistake you can make. You got to spit out the first draft. I know, but that's why I don't know why I'm so writing is rewriting. It is right. Yes. How many? If you wrote a uh, sitcom, yeah. How many? Because I've written on staff before, so yeah. I understand. And I don't know if people who are listening understand when a writer hands in a script. If you keep two jokes in that draft, by the time it hits the shooting script, yeah, it's amazing. Right. Sometimes the entire story is the only thing that's the same is the title yeah. of the script. And so I understood that writing on staff. But for whatever reason at my house, man, if that first draft isn't rough, I sometimes, I have first drafts, not kidding, three first drafts of sitcoms that I wrote and are on my computer and I just, different shows that I was just like, I'm fucking never touching that again. Yeah. Because I was, I was like, I could never. That'll never be anything. Because I, I don't know why. Well, do you have a friend you can show it to who gives you uh, criticism? Yeah, you know my buddy. Um, do you know who Greg Garcia is? Yeah. So Garcia is a good friend of mine, and he's very honest. And by the way, uh, for a guy who's that busy, doing everything, he, re- you know, if you send him a script, he reads it in a wow, day, in a day, nice. with turnover with notes the next day. Wow. But if someone sends you a script, how long does it usually take you to write read it? I've got one that I've had on my laptop for four months, another one for three months. Yeah. And I know it would only take me an hour to yeah. read it. Yeah. So for him to turn it around and be that busy is crazy, but I still don't know what it is. And he'll, he's really honest and, and a, a good person to bounce things off of because he's, you know, my name is Earl and Raising Hope and a ton of other shit. Um, and I had him on my podcast, and to hear him talk about his process is pretty fucking amazing mm. and to know that it's not a one-shot thing because i know nobody writes like that i don't know why i'm so harsh on myself about that stuff i think all writers are i think it's a i think it's just a process of like um thinking about how bad everybody else is if you watch a sitcom on tv mm-hmm. you'll look at yours a lot differently what do you think happened do you think because do you think I mean, when you look at the 70s, because to me, the 70s and the 80s were the really the prime time for sitcoms. Do you think that we just want more realness or do you think just the that genre, the skill set for writing that just for some reason went out the fucking window? I don't know. I mean, I think that the the problem is that um, networks want to take less risks. And so they think that their chances of getting a hit show are better if they really, you know, uh, note it to death. And mm-hmm. then they hire these development executives uh. who, who are going to tell the creative people how to do it. And then I think that you start to self-censor. I think you start to write things that are, that, that you, you are avoiding, well, they're not going to do that because the two characters aren't right. gay. I got to make them gay. And everything's getting very p- predictable. And so I, I think that, you know, you, with Cable, when you see a show like Louie's, or Always Sunny in Philadelphia, or something that's really different, um, it's because the network is 
not big enough to worry that much about the program. Right. And they can they can take some risks. They also in those risks uh, is the most important thing that I think the big networks don't have, which is patience. Yeah, you need they they want a hit the first show out. First show out, and that just doesn't especially you know first season of Seinfeld. The first season of Seinfeld, Kramer, I didn't particularly like. No, but by third season, I was like, "Oh, this dude is a right, right." He found they the the writing and the character found themselves. Right, right. and same with George. First season, George, I didn't like George. No, third season, George. Yeah, but there was patience, so they let the audience find the people, and then they let the 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 characters find the voice. Right, they don't give you that anymore. No, they really don't. And um, my friend Mike Gibbons, you know Mike Gibbons, yeah, right? Yeah, He just got a show on the air. What was the show? It's called um, The Great Indoors. Joel McHale yep, starring yep, it. Yep, yep, So it's great. I think they gave him like a 12-episode pickup. They did? Yeah, I think so. Is that because of Joel? Or yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. See, that's the thing. It's talent, talent, talent-driven. But there's Ken a- Jung just got a whole year pickup. That's good. I like Ken. Yeah. Did you ever do stand-up with him? Oh, yeah. I remember he used to come up with a guitar and sing, but he and he also did a lot of really. Uh, he called himself, you know, a, a, an Asian, a ghetto Asian. Yeah, it was hilarious. Yeah, he would get up and do a little bit of talking about being a doctor, an actual yeah. doctor. But I also remember thinking this guy should probably quit. Yeah, <laughs> when I was I was writing on Cedric the Entertainer, we hired him to come in and do his like he he yeah. an acoustic guitar, but he'd sing a rap song. Yeah, Gin and Juice. And, uh, you know, and I remember it's the, me, me and Louis C.K. Wrote, wrote on the show, and I just remember we watched him, and we were just like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But sure you know what? The, the, his who, I don't know if his stand up was ever great, but his who am I in the movies are fantastic. He's great. He's a great actor, and yes. he, knows, he knows what's funny. And uh, boy, what a fucking good guy. Great guy. Nice guy. That this thing, like, you know, the uh, sometimes. Being a funny person doesn't necessarily equate to being a great stand-up. Yeah, right. And you can be funny. Like there, I also I'm. What do you think about the people who are celebrities who just decide, oh, I'm going to get into stand-up now? Well, I mean, Joel McHale did that. Yeah, and uh, I guess he's doing pretty well. Like he sells out some theaters and stuff. Yeah, I don't really know how the act is. I mean, it's uh, it's generally not great yeah i think i think if, if stand-up's not your first priority and what you do for 10 years straight i don't think you can ever get to a certain level but if you're funny and you're likable i mean yeah. jesus christ tom hanks did punchline he did stand-up i saw a videotape from the comic strip of the first two times he did stand-up he was fucking great was he really and then he and then he's he so likable to get ready for punchline no Somebody heckled and he fucking annihilated them and he was a storyteller and he he had timing. I mean, some people just have, I mean, I imagine if Bill Murray got up and did stand up, he'd be able Crush. to do it. Yeah. So I think it's possible. But um, to me to see I got to see the failure in the darkness on the comedian in the comedian for it to really resonate. Do you like watching people bomb sometimes? Hmm. You know, in the comedy store, you sit in the back and there's yeah, like 17 I guess people. When Brody bombs, it's always funny. When Kindler bombs, it's funny. But because they, Bro- I don't know if they almost bring it on on purpose because it's funny when they bomb. If Brody didn't bomb, it wouldn't be Brody. Right. You need him to walk out in the audience and shake people up. Do you, would you ever want your kids to do stand-up? No. Are your kids funny? My daughter is, yeah. Why wouldn't you want them to do stand-up? 
I just think it's a really uh, it's a lonely life because you know you're working weekends and nights and mm -hmm. you don't see your friends and you don't go to your cousin's wedding and I mean, if they need to do it, they're going to do it, and I'll support it. Right. But I would love to see them um, be creative and engaged and passionate, but uh, do it in do it in a, a, a way that you don't have to sacrifice so much. I'm going to ask you one question, two parts. All right, but then we got to go because yep. I have another podcast. I'm doing it too. You ready? Yeah. If you could tell me the one the one part of you that you would want your kids to have right. the one part of you that you wouldn't want your kids to have. Right. I guess I'd want I'd want them to be as fortunate as I am and I found something that I love to do and that I I am as excited to do tonight as I was. But is there a part of your personality of part, or a part of your who am I that you're like I hope they get this. I oh. hope this part of me is something that they get. I think decency like, you know, whether it's having good manners to, um, you know, checking in on a friend who's depressed a week later and, you know, like just caring about people in a way that is proactive and decent. That's a good one. I got, and I grew up Catholic, and I think it comes from that. Do you think that's something that is inherent or can be taught? No, I think you can teach that. I think you can model that. And, you know, we do soup kitchens a lot, and we do this thing with best buddies. We work with retarded kids. Retarded. And, uh, you know, and I think that you can model empathy and they can pick up on that. And they and and manners go. Well, manners aren't just the act of holding a door or saying thank you or not eating until everybody else says mm -hmm. it's it goes beyond the actual action. It, it it sort of like creates a ripple effect of being aware of other people. My biggest pet peeve and it happened on the freeway coming down here. You 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 nailed it on the head. Being aware of other people is something that I think is missing in today's society in a big way. Even small things. Look, there are four lanes on the 405. You're in the far left-hand lane doing 60. Yeah. Be aware that there's a line of people behind you. It's unbelievable when people do that. That's a perfect example of it. You're just not... You're in your little bubble. Yes. Right. But that, I, I think that's a huge thing. Asian. Being aware, no. If it was Asian, I would have at least been like, no, okay. Yeah. But being aware of other people, I think, is a huge thing. And I think the phones are a little bit of fault of that because everything, it's so it's so egocentric. It's so yeah. right here. It sucks you into. Yeah, yeah. But I, I that's a good one. I, I feel like my kids have really good manners. Um, and I feel like... You know, I've also said, and I don't know if you agree with this, as a parent, it's more important what they see as opposed to what they hear. Right. Like, if they, if they, if, if you said you got to have good manners, and you told them that every day, but they watched you and you were an asshole, yeah. they wouldn't have good manners. Right. But if you never said you need to have good manners, and they just watched you having good manners, I believe that's enough. I think so. Absolutely. I see my kids pick up on my behavior all the time, good yeah. and bad. And I think I don't drive well in front of them. And now that my son is uh, 15, I got to start modeling better driving. Might be too late. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> might, might be too late. Yeah. What would be the one thing you would not want them to, of yours, that you're like, man, I hope this isn't something I'm, I'm passing down to them? Oh, so many. Really? So many. Is there one... I can tell you for me what mine would be for my kids, and my kids are older, 
and two of them have it and one of them don't. That is the, I, I am a control guy. Yeah. And I wish I wasn't. I've made a concerted effort, even in conversations. Like when I'm in a group of people, and people say all the time, you're kind of quiet or you, I thought you'd be funnier in the conversation. And for me, I've made a concerted effort as I get older to blend a little bit more. Right. To sit in the background, to listen, to right. enjoy the conversation. Yeah. And not try to control it in the people. Good for you. That's it's hard to do. Very difficult to do. Yeah. Especially, you know, in our profession, but I've, in the last five, seven years, especially, I'm like, I'm not going to be the dude who's on. Yeah. I'm not. When I'm off, I'm going to be off. Do you know what I mean? And I just want to be able to be, enjoy the conversation. And, and when funny happens, it happens, whatever. So that would be the one for me that I've really tried. It's the control thing because I see it. I like your, I like the, that's like a humble brag. Like, I want to be less funny. No, no, no. <laughs> no I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I guess for me, I mean, just the, the depression is chemical and I've found a lot of ways to deal with it. Like I mentioned, TM and yeah. I exercise and, Medicaid and go to talk therapy and I it's a lot of Holy fucking shit, work that just is to a be lot. just to be normal yeah. for me and I wish my children to not have that baggage and you don't know because when does that start it, to rear its head I think in you know I think it's one of the reasons also I quit drinking is it was you know it, the depression was not being helped by alcohol so I think probably in my early twenties it started to take a grip a little bit more and so. And you know what's funny is in my daughter has gone through some rough patches. You know, she diagnosed depressed and then they diagnosed bipolar and they were put on these she was put on these meds that did not really fit with her. And they went we went to one psychiatrist and we sat down and he talked to her for twenty minutes. And he goes, I'm gonna tell you something, you're not bipolar. Hmm. And she's like, What? And he's like, I don't know if somebody diagnosed you as that, but you're not bipolar. I can tell you right now you're not bipolar. Nah. And he talked to her for another twenty minutes and he goes, I he said, tell me a little something about your childhood. And she talked some stuff. He asked her a couple questions. And he goes, yeah, you have PTSD. It's 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 The medication is off for you. But he said, if you'd be willing to try this for a month. From her mom dying? Her mom didn't die. Oh, I thought her mom died. No, no, no. Her mom uh, had some addiction problems, but oh. not died. Oh, right, right, right. right. Um, but um, she had some, and uh, it changed her whole life. Yeah. But but but, but the, the mental illness... Now, how did a, she deal with the PTSD? How did she? Oh, the guy gave her a different medication. Oh, because a lot of times PTSD, uh, I know there's a lot of new uh, breakthroughs in behavioral cognitive therapy for that, like uh, uh, EMDR. Is that what? Is that what you take ecstasy and you don't dance to? That you know what? At the MD, say EMDR that, festival. No, 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 <laughs> but but they say that you taking. Um, Taking hallucinogenics can really help with PTSD. Really, you can release. But no, EMDR is a, it's a you, your eye movement, like you know how the the, the watch going yeah. back and forth. Well, now they do it with like you hold two different uh, sensors and it buzzes Don't do this back. To me. It buzzes back and forth <laughs> in your hand, so it looks like you're jerking two guys two, off. Two guys off. <laughs> um, and it, it it connects both halves of your brain: the side that stores trauma, which is one side, and the other side, which is linear and and holds time. Yeah. And uh, what, when you have trauma, your brain doesn't realize it happened a long time ago, and it holds on to it, and it keeps reliving it. And when you connect the other side of the brain, which is time, it lets it release. Holy shit. And they shit. found with, with um, soldiers coming back, 
they're using this for their because you know the PTSD with soldiers is my son has fucking it. through the roof. My son has it, yeah. And so they um, they found that now now Blue Cross is covering it because it is certifiably working and better what, than medication. What an interesting! I had never thought of that. Like your brain holds on to the emotion, and then when the other half of the brain kicks in and goes, "It's not here anymore." Right. I'm definitely gonna look into that for her. Yeah, definitely look into it. You know, she, it, it's interesting to see one of your kids go, th- go. It's interesting to watch your kids go through something because when they're young, for most of their problems, you can fix it. Yeah. It's interesting to watch your child go through something that you can't fix. Especially when you have control issues like you. That must be brutal. Oh, it was really rough. And to see her, you know, and she's such a, a smart young woman. So she would say, she's understand. I know I'm not being rational right now. Mm. Or and she could even say that. I and sometimes she would cry and be like, I can't I know this I'm I know what I'm doing isn't right and I can't stop it. But that's huge that she can that she can yes. see that. But but for a parent it's it, it's like a heartbreaking right. because I know there's nothing I can do either. Right. It was my as someone with control issues, when my son went to Afghanistan, you know, my job is to keep him safe. Right. And I that's the ultimate you can't keep him safe. Yeah. And so those that's a tough thing to watch your kid go through something. So uh, it's interesting that you, because you may now, because I didn't pick up on signs because I've never been depressed or anything. Is that something that you look you, in the back of your head? You're like, I, I hope they don't fall into this, but I, I know the signs. Yeah. I mean, I, I see the signs, but, you know, depression is like a lot of things. It's a spectrum thing, and, you know, you can you can manifest it in different ways. Yeah. And I think we all have some elements of depression, but whether or not you, you put, a, put a stamp on it, like I think with your daughter being misdiagnosed with bipolar, it's like it's very hard to just rubber stamp a, a, a mental, mental yeah. situation. If your kid, so say your son is 15 right now. Yeah. And say... He, because as you from the mescaline and cocaine at 14, say he, you found weed in his room yeah. or he came home and you smelled booze on his breath. Mm. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because uh, if I knew I did it at a young age, but then I, you know, I stopped for a reason, right. meaning I was not in control of it. And it was not something that because uh, I, I think you can use pot constructively in your life. Yep. And, and I've said to him, you know, I'm not villainizing pot to you. It's like. You know, there's a time and a place to do it, and it's not when you're a teenager. And so I would prefer him when he gets older to smoke pot over drinking alcohol. Me too, me too. Yeah. What if he, what about, what would you be more okay with him doing? And maybe, and your wife too. Mescaline? Yeah, everybody. What would you be okay with him doing? Having sex on a regular basis at 15 or partying a little? What's wrong with sex? I don't have a problem with it at all. Some people are very have. I think if it was it. a respectful relationship with a girl, no and it's anal, sensual, no anal, no, <laughs> just oral. <laughs> all right, listen, I gotta go. Okay, okay, sorry, I'm sorry. Um, it's been an hour and a half. I, I, it has been an hour and a half. Yeah, buddy, flew by, didn't it? it? Hasn't seemed like an hour and a half. I know. I I feel like I could go for another hour. I wish we had more time. Um, Bobby Goddamn you, Lee coming in. What do you want to plug? I would like to plug Fitz Dog Radio, my podcast, which I love. It's my little baby. Uh, it's really, by the way, for those of you who haven't listened, you're an excellent 
not only conversationalist, but you're a, a great listener and you're a, good, a great interviewer. So oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, you've been on the show a couple times. But I also listen. Yours is one of the few podcasts yeah. that I listen to. Oh, thank you very much. Um, So that's a good one, guys. And then when does this come out? I will put it out on Thursday. All right, because this weekend I will be doing, um, for Best Buddies, I'm biking from Boston down to Cape Cod to raise money for Best Buddies, which is for uh, mentally disabled uh, people, helps integrate them into society and get them jobs and things like that. I'm going to hook you up with some of my friends in Boston. Oh, that's Can great. Can they pledge for you? Yes, that'd be great. Just go to fitzdog.com, F-I-T-Z dog, and there's a picture of me with the uh, mentally challenged people there and click on it. Make a don- Even if it's a small donation, Can you tell the difference nice. between you and the mentally challenged people? Or is it yes, bl- my my head is... Uh, no, I'm not going to say anything. Nobody's going to play. Um, but yeah, do that. Support that. That would mean a lot to me. All right, guys. And so, you know, I'm going to be in Albany in a couple weeks and then Jacksonville at the end of the month. And rate and subscribe and tell your friends about the podcast. And we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Sorry to cut it off.